0: Dr. Mike Courtney and his beautiful bride Doris are members of our church. And I just I just look for places on our calendar to have him come and teach us because we always are so blessed. So Doctor Courtney, would you come? He's my favorite Nazarene. Give him a hand. Would you do that? (laughs) Keith and I were talking over there, Pastor Eddie, you don't ever have to worry about what he's thinking, he'll just say it, he just, that's great, thank you for letting me be here, wasn't last Sunday a great, great time to celebrate and uh, and to just be a part of the church and then Keith and Christy for your ministry and the story, what a what a powerful story, it's just a scary, it, from our perspective, a scary place to be and they're so courageous to be there, thank you, thank you for that. I I served 23 years in pastoral ministry, and the last 10 years in full-time counselor in behavioral mental health, and it it seems to me that one word has kind of risen to the surface for me at at the core of most of the issues that people deal with, the, the difficult times, the struggles that they have. Most of the time, there's one word that's at the heart of this, and it's what I want to talk to you about today, and that word is Shame. I just want to spend just a little bit of time talking about about shame. But uh, before we do, can we pray together? Is that all right? Father, thanks for your grace and mercy upon our lives. Thank you for a great church, a great uh, pastoral staff, and for your Holy Spirit that welcomes and invites us every time we're here. So I pray that your direction and guidance would be evident today and that you would speak to us in the next few moments. Uh, Thank you for what you have done and will do. In your name we pray. Amen. It began, as many things did, in the garden. You know the story, God makes the world, and He steps back and says, This is good. He flings stars in the sky and hangs the moon on the other side of the ocean, sets an alarm clock to wake the sun up every day, and then He says, This is good. And then God makes living things, like ducks and dogs and daffodils. He makes majestic golden eagles with wingspans wider than cars, and little hummingbirds the size of spark plugs he carpets the meadows with wildflowers and fills the forest with wild animals he makes trees and trout and turtle doves and he says this is good and then in a moment of godlike genius because he's god and all his genius is godlike god makes man and woman <clears throat> he he fits them together the crowning glory of all that god has done And God steps back and says, this is good. This is real good. The serpent slithers in and says to Eve, the woman, you're not good. You're not good enough. You should know more. You should be better. You should be smarter. You should be like God. And so Eve takes the apple and gives it to Adam and they take a bite and Like a bomb dropping on Nagasaki, the mushroom cloud sweeps through generations until it stabs me and you in the heart with that steel dagger that we call shame. And we look in the mirror every morning and we say, this is not good. I should be thinner. I should stand up straight. Maybe if I colored my hair or got a little tuck. And it goes far deeper than that. What was I thinking? How could I have been so stupid? I could never forgive myself. Uh, They can never forgive me. I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. I'm a mistake. I am so ashamed. We call it shame. The Easter story that we listened to last week addresses that. You remember the interesting little phrase the angel used when he instructed the women in the garden? It's in Mark chapter 16. Let me read the first seven verses to you. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint the body of Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stones away from the entrance? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. Can I just tell you I have waited four years to preach a sermon on this verse of Scripture in front of Pastor Eddie. (laughs) Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. (laughs) He was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as you told him. It's that, it's that little phrase in verse 7 that captures my imagination. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. What, what in the world is that about? What, what do you think is going on there? Well, you remember the story... In the upper room, Jesus is telling the guys what's about to happen. He tells them he's going to be betrayed. And Peter opens his big mouth and says, Lord, everyone else might turn tail and run, but not me. Not me, Lord. You, you can count on me. I'll never betray you. I imagine Jesus just shakes his head and puts his arm around Peter's shoulders. And then he says, I tell you the truth, Peter, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice you will disown me three times. The story unfolds. Jesus is arrested. Peter grabs a sword and cuts off some guy's ear. Maybe Jesus is wrong about this. Surely somebody as brave as Peter will not desert him. Surely he can count on Peter, but they take Jesus away. Peter's milling around in front of the courthouse. Some young girl says, hey, hey, you're one of the disciples. It's a it's a confusing moment. There's just a lot going on and, and there's some panic. It's a spur of the moment thing. Anybody could do that kind of thing. G- Peter says, nope, not me. You have me mistaken with someone else. Er, er, er. And there it is. It happened. But look, it, it could have happened to anybody. I mean, right place, wrong time, just a bad choice. We've all made that kind of blunder. But then again a soldier says, I I think I saw you with him. No way, says Peter, I'm not one of those fanatics. Another guy pipes up, no, I'm sure you're one of them. And Peter curses, I told you I don't know him. I never laid eyes on him. Just leave me alone. And a mushroom cloud sweeps across him and punches him in the gut. Shame overwhelms Peter. Oh my God! What was I thinking? I'll never live this down. I'm a failure. I'm no good. I'm so ashamed. Shame is a horrible emotion. It's got to be one of the feelings that's man. It's got to be the one feeling that's manufactured entirely by the devil. Anger can be destructive, but it can also be righteous. Paul says, "Be angry, but do not sin." Sadness is certainly a difficult feeling to live with, but sadness can be healthy in processing loss and dealing with grief. Pain is not fun, but most of the important lessons in life we learn come from pain. I like to say the only problem with pain is that it hurts. There are a lot of negative emotions and feelings, and they all have their necessary uh, positive side, except shame. Shame is the one feeling that eats away at the root of our very being. Like a decayed tooth, it destroys any hope of being functional. It does nothing but sit and hurt until it causes us to rot away. Shame, like no other feeling, works its way deeper and deeper into our souls until everything we believe about God and about others and especially about ourselves is colored by shame. Shame is not guilt. Guilt's from God. David says in the 51st Psalm, My sin is ever before me, O God. Against you I have sinned. Guilt is about conviction. Shame is about condemnation. Guilt is about doing wrong. Shame is about being wrong. Guilt is about what I've done. Shame is about who I am. Guilt says i made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. It causes me to loathe myself and lose any hope of reconciliation. Shame is awful, insidious, defeating, and destructive. It has to come from the devil. I, as I was thinking about this, I was reading some interesting studies about the locus of shame in the brain. Let me give you kind of a quick reminder of how the brain works. We, we all actually have three brains now, you might think your husband doesn't have three brains, but he does. We all have three brains. The amygdala, which is a small pea-sized brain that we actually are born with, fully functioning. The, uh, the hippocampus and then the, the, the picture of the brain that we think of when we see the brain, the cortex or neocortex. The amygdala is often called the, the reptilian brain or, or the alligator brain. It's fully formed when we're born. It basically has one job. And that job is survival. It's just to keep us alive. Like, like an alligator that lays beside the swamp, it just categorizes everything into two categories. I can eat this or this can eat me. That's just all it thinks about. Is this, is this good or is this dangerous? The hippocampus is uh, often called the mammalian brain or the monkey brain. Uh, and some of you may live with the monkey brain a lot, the, The hippocampus, it's actually shaped like a seahorse. It's at the base of the brain. And the hippocampus is not fully formed until we're about age 10 or 11. It's it's the ram drive of the brain. It just takes in data and information. It it just takes all of that in. And then it sends it off, including messages from the amygdala. It sends that off to the appropriate place in, in the cortex. So when something comes in, the hippocampus basically is just a, a button pusher. It just pushes one or two buttons to set things into motion, usually fight, flight, freeze, or feed. One of those four things that we do in response to the messages coming in, coming in from the amygdala. The, that all then is sent to the, to the cortex or neocortex. There's four different lobes in the brain. The the temporal cortex, the occipital cortex, the parietal cortex, and the frontal cortex. Aren't you glad you came today? It's all in the Bible. Just read it in there. You'll find it in (laughs) there. That's called the the scientist brain or the thinking brain. Now, Now, here's the thing. Studies have been done that show us that shame is most active in the amygdala and the hippocampus. We do things like MRIs and we've taken pictures that discover that guilt and anger and sadness and frustration, all of those things find their way into the cortex. And, and there they can be reasoned and rationalized, they can be assigned value so we can put those in the right place. I I forget my wife's birthday. I hate that. I feel bad about it. I feel guilty. But I recognize it's not the end of the world. Might be the end of sex for the foreseeable future, but it's not the end of the world. I didn't know if I had enough nerve to say that in front of my wife, but I did. I'm proud of myself. It's not the end of the world. We'll get past that. We think through this and we'll get past it. But shame doesn't do that. Shame gets stuck in the hippocampus. And there it does two things. It hyperactivates the amygdala, So that we see danger in everything. We become perpetual victims. No one could possibly like me. I don't fit in. They'll never forgive me. I'm just broken. I'm unlovable. Even God can't be trusted. He could not possibly see this as good. Or we become constant aggressors. Nobody's going to take, out, take care of me, so I better look out for number one. I'll get my own way no matter what. I'm going to make things happen the way I want them to happen. And all of this operating out of this deep base of shame. So it hyperactivates the amygdala, and then it locks up the hippocampus. It just gets stuck there. It refuses to get passed on to the place where it can be dealt with and rationalized. And so it's in perpetual present all of the time. My shame is always there. It changes from what I am feeling to who I am. It's not, it's not guilt about making a mistake. It's being sure that I am a mistake. That I am worthless. I I am never, ever going to be able to overcome this thing. I am ashamed. And so, if you have an alligator brain and everything looks like danger to you, what do you do? Well, you hide. Let's go back to the garden, the first garden. Then the Lord said to man, uh, the Lord called to man and said to him, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked. The Hebrew word for afraid is yare. It's not scared, physically fearful, but it's a moral thing. I have done something wrong. Look at what Adam says. He says, he doesn't say, I was afraid because I ate the apple. I did something wrong. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. I am something wrong. And every thought and every decision and every observation begins to be filtered through this base of shame. And sometimes that happens very early in our lives, very often in childhood. Uh, Marilyn Sorensen is a Ph.D., clinical psychologist, and she wrote a great book called Breaking the Chain of Low Self-Esteem. She says this, Early in life, individuals developed an internalized view of themselves as adequate or inadequate within the world. Children who are continually criticized, severely punished, neglected, abandoned, or in other ways abused or mistreated get the message that they do not fit in the world, that they are inadequate, inferior Or unworthy. Unlike guilt, which is the feeling of doing something wrong, shame is the feeling of being something wrong. When a person experiences shame, they feel there is basically something wrong with me. I was afraid because I was naked. I am so ashamed. So when that comes up, Why do we hide? Well, we hide so that the other person will not find out that I am not who they think I am or who I think they think I am. My parents said, you're such a loser. You'll never amount to anything. Why can't you be like your sister? Shame very often comes from our family of origin, from our upbringing. Sometimes our parents, well-meaning, try to shame us into doing the right thing. And we buy into that shame. I should be smarter or skinnier or more talented or more disciplined. We buy into that. And then we, we do something dumb to confirm that. I quit my job. I drop out of school. I get a DUI. I get a divorce. I, I just don't succeed to the degree that I think I should. And shame is internalized. It has taken root. We are flawed. We are shamed well that's why we hide but where do we hide when shame comes sometimes we isolate we withdraw like the woman at the well we become a social outcast but more often than not we hide by wearing masks. i'm okay no I'm, I'm good i'm good kids are great my portfolio's growing my job's looking good wife and i are in a transition time but we're good we're we're really good And the problem with that is that our masks look so human. They look so real that we can hide in corporate offices. We can hide in the front of our class. We can hide while leading a small group or even leading a church. I'm good. I'm good, thanks. No, really good. Really good. And behind the mask, shame is whispering, you're not good. You don't belong. You're flawed. Shame. Well, here's the thing. Of all the things that Jesus came to do, the most powerful was to reverse the curse of shame. Jesus came to go all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes trying to cover themselves with leaves. Jesus came to stomp on the head of the snake and lovingly reach down down and, and take Adam and Eve by the hand and lead them out of hiding. And He says to them... What he says to us, you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to hide or even wear a mask. I'm, I'm crazy about you just the way you are. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many sinners, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many became righteous. And that's what's going on with Peter. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Go, go tell Peter he doesn't need to be ashamed. Go tell Peter that Jesus loves him and took all his shame away. Go tell Peter, he doesn't have to be bold and blustery, that it's okay to be afraid sometimes, that I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer, that he can be afraid, that he can be wrong, that he can be mistaken, but tell him I love him just the way he is, without a mask, with nothing to prove and nothing to hide, no shame. The beginning of Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith... We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too, he says in verse 3, we can rejoice too that we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. There it is. The serpent says, You're no good. You should be ashamed. And Jesus says... I have made you right in God's sight. I brought you to a place of undeserved privilege. And you stand confidently and joyfully. And how do we live like that? Well, we live like that because the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with love. No shame. So, maybe you're here today. And your alligator brain is telling you that you don't measure up. Maybe it's been saying to you for a long time, the world is a dangerous place. You're not good enough. You're flawed. You're broken. You can never be fixed. Maybe some huge mistake, some sin, some act you can't forget is stuck in your hippocampus. And you just can't wipe the scene from your mind. Everything we celebrated last weekend was about you. It was about that. It was that Jesus changed all of that. He took all of that shame away. And He says to you this morning, Go tell my disciples, and Peter, and Kathy, and David, and and Lana, and Gary, go tell my disciples, there is no more room for shame. Well, here's all you have to do. There's two things. Uh, you have to come out of hiding. The 12 steps say, we confess the nature of our defect to God and to one other human being. John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to take off the mask and be willing to come out of hiding. And then we accept His grace. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind my failures, my mistakes, my sin, forgetting those things, and reaching for what is ahead, I press on. In another place, Paul says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. So come out of hiding, take off the mask, and accept the grace that God has for you. No shame. I suggest to you today, Don't be shamed anymore. Take off your mask. Chase the alligator away. Confess right now that you've been wearing a mask far too long and accept His grace by praying this simple prayer. Would you pray this prayer with me right now? Dear Jesus, You know me like no one else. And You love me like no one else. I take off my mask I lay down my sin. I accept your forgiveness and grace. And I choose to stand confidently and joyfully because of you. Go tell my disciples and Peter. Would you say that with me? Except where it says Peter, would you put Your name there. Now, don't say your name here. Don't say that. Say your name. Are you ready? Go tell my disciples and Mike. No shame. God bless you. Thanks for letting me be here today.